0: Good morning to you. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, would you take it out please and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 2. If you'd like a handout for the lesson this morning, there are a couple of gentlemen who have those. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 2. Thank you for being here. We uh, see a number who are visiting with us. We're grateful for your presence, grateful that you've chosen to come our way this morning. And we'll begin in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 2. Uh, in a book of Wisdom that describes the things that are better. The wise man Solomon says this in verse 2 Better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. For our congregation here, uh, maybe you're visiting with us again this morning. But for our congregation here, for our members, we've been in the house of mourning a, a great deal here lately. Uh, we've had a number of people who've, who've passed from this life, and we've had to deal with the emotions of that. And I want to make a couple of things clear from what uh, Solomon says here in this verse. Number one, by better he doesn't mean that it feels better in the house of mourning than the house of feasting. It feels better in the house of feasting. It feels better when there's a party. But what he's saying is that this is better for us because this is the end of all men and the living will take it to heart. That we take to heart the reality that all of us will have to face a day of death. And he expands on that in verses 3 and 4. Sorrow is better than laughter. Why? For by a sad countenance the heart is made better. Verse 4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of myrrh. So we see this idea that we are better when we go to the house of mourning because we consider things of a serious nature. We know that there is a day of death coming, that this is the end of all men. And that's the second thing that I want to make clear from this passage. He says, this is the end of all men, but he is not saying that that's the end of our existence. It's not the end of our being. It's the end of our physical life on earth, sure, but it is not the end of us. And so we ask, what next? Where do we go? Well, there is great comfort in knowing where a loved one is going, when they're going to get there, and what they're doing when they do. Uh, I know that's true of me. That's true of me with my folks. It's true of me with my uh, sister. Uh, it's, I know it's going to be true when my girls are at that age where they're going and doing different things. If I know where they're going... I know what they're going to do when they get there, and I I know how they're going to get there. That's going to bring a certain degree of comfort to me. We tell people that we love, hey, text me when you get there. Why? So that we have comfort knowing that they arrived. We ask them, which way are you going? So maybe we can give them some advice, and there's a better way than what Siri tells you on the phone. And gaining that knowledge likely doesn't change anything for them or about them and the trip they have in front of them, but it brings comfort to us. And I want to try and do something similar this morning regarding life after death. And we certainly can't answer all of our questions about death and the afterlife this morning. I I wouldn't try to do that. But hopefully we can set up a biblical framework by which we might understand and answer This really basic question, where do we go when we die? If you have your Bible, would you turn over now to Luke chapter 16, please? Luke chapter 16. And even if you don't have your own Bible with you, there should be one provided for you there in the pew. And if you'll turn over to Luke chapter 16, that will be our primary text this morning. If we can answer this question, where do we go when we die, it should ease any anxiety we have for ourselves or for our loved ones in the Lord, knowing what is coming next. And so we'll read together in Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. Now this is called uh, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, but but parable is a little bit misleading uh, because it doesn't fit with what see the other parables. Parables were generally made-up stories, not something that actually happened, something that could happen, but not something where a person actually did this. In this account, in verses 19 through 31, we see that there's a man who has a name. This seemingly was a real person, and this is something that really happened. And when we think about parables, parables were about everyday physical life, and then Jesus would make a connection to things of a spiritual nature. But But this is not about physical life. This is about what happens after physical life, what happens after death. And so to me, it seems reasonable that this is a description in terms we can understand of what happens when we die. Begin reading in verse 19 with me. Jesus says, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, Think about it, that's exactly what this man was. He was a a child of Abraham, a descendant of Abraham, and Abraham is the father of this nation. I think that's in some ways the saddest word in this whole account. Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this between us and you there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot nor can those from there pass to us. And so we see this description of Hades the unseen realm and one of our questions that we have of life after death maybe is answered to a certain degree here. We see that this rich man he recognizes Lazarus there But he also recognizes Abraham, Abraham that he had never met, obviously, but he knows that somehow that's Father Abraham. And, And Abraham recognizes him as one of his sons, as one of the children of Abraham, one of his descendants. And so at least here in this context, there's a recognition of who these people are. But that's not where Jesus ends. In verse 27, the rich man said, I beg you, therefore, Father that you would send him to my father's house, my physical earthly father's house. For I have five brothers, that he, Lazarus, may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. So where do we go when we die? The short answer, based on this passage, is a place called Hades, Hades. Hades is a compound word that literally means not to be seen. We sometimes refer to it as the unseen realm of the dead, where those who die now go. And it seems as though Hades is divided into two parts. There is what we might call paradise. Uh, The beggar, Lazarus, is found there in Luke chapter 16 in this place, paradise. And all of this is on your handout as well. And we remember in Luke chapter 23 and 43 when Jesus is on the cross and there is one of the two thieves on each side who asks him to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. And you remember what Jesus said in response, today you will be with me in paradise. And Jesus was going into Hades and apparently going into this paradise, this good part of Hades. But we see also that there is a place in Hades that is called torment, and that's where the rich man finds himself in Luke chapter 16 as well. And between these two places, between paradise and torment, there is a great gulf that is fixed. There is a division between these two places where you cannot pass from one side to the other. At least, at least those who were humans who have passed on into this place cannot pass from one side to the other. At some point, seemingly at the creation or after the creation of the world, these two places in Hades were created as well. And when God created the heavens and the earth, earth time began counting forward from that beginning. And after sin came into the world with the sins of Adam and Eve, so too did physical death. So what happens then? What happens at this moment of our death? Well, we've already seen from our passage there in Luke chapter 16. But if we consider another passage, Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 7, in describing physical death and how physical death is coming for all of us, Solomon says, Then the dust will return to the earth as it was. We even say that sometimes at, at burials, right? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And the spirit will return to God who gave it. And so our spirit goes up to this place of Hades. I say up. It's going to another realm, right? And our body goes into the grave. But it doesn't apparently stay in the grave forever. It goes into the grave until the resurrection, The spirit goes to Hades, the body to the grave. And that is the pattern for all until this final day of the Lord, this day of judgment or reckoning when Christ comes and destroys the world. And the dead are raised to stand before God at Christ's return. So let's read a couple of these passages that we have on the screen. Turn first to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we'll begin in verse 16, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 16. The Apostle Paul is addressing a false doctrine that has sprung up uh, in Corinth. And maybe it is uh, the beginnings of Gnosticism, but but the idea is that the dead do not rise. And that was something that the the Greeks would have said. uh, Generally, the Greeks would have understood that the dead do not rise, at least not in the way we think about it. Uh, And we remember that some of the Jews thought that as well. The Sadducees did not believe in this general resurrection of the dead. And so Paul is addressing that idea, and he's saying, look, if the dead do not rise, that destroys everything about Christianity. So begin reading with me in verse 16 of 1 Corinthians 15. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. And then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And he talks about that in a little greater detail, but I want us, for our purposes this morning, to drop down to verse 35, if you would. So verse 35 together. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up? I mean, don't you have that question? I mean, how does that work? I mean, the body decomposes. Well, we're thinking about these things from a physical perspective, and that's what Paul says. Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that it shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. Um, God has created all of these things, and they're all different. And the point that he's making is in regard to our physical body and our spiritual body. Verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Christ, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man, Christ. Now, you're still with me. Maybe I've lost you, right? He's going through this argument. Let's sum up in these last three verses, 50 through 52. Now this I say, brethren that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. This is something that I'm revealing to you. We shall not all sleep. We will not all die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. I I can't explain all of that to you, but I believe it, that we will be raised at that last day when Christ comes in his glory to destroy the earth and to take the faithful home in Jesus. Um, If you want to turn over to uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Thessalonians was likely written years before 1 Corinthians, And so Paul addressed the same resurrection uh, in a shorter way and for a different purpose in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. Now writing to Christians who are faithful and are seeking to find comfort for their loved ones who have passed on, he says, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Then he goes on to say in chapter 5, we don't know when that day is. We know it will come as a thief in the night, but we know that there will be some who are still living when Christ comes again. But the vast majority will be those that we address this morning. Those who have already passed, those who are already asleep those who have already died, and they will be raised in that day at Christ's return. Now, these passages that we've read in 1 Corinthians and and 1 Thessalonians, they deal specifically with Christians, with the fateful dead, with those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. But all people will have to stand before God in judgment. Now, we we hear that phrase, and we, we have this concept, this idea of judgment, but when we think about judgment, we shouldn't think about standing trial per se. Our destiny is already determined at death. God has already judged in that sense, right? But instead, the day of judgment is like all of the days of the Lord that we see throughout our Old and New Testaments. These days of reckoning, these days of sentencing, where God is carrying out the punishment, the sentence, or the reward for those who have lived in certain ways. Um, Notice some passages with me. Uh, This uh, will just about complete our reading if we read these three passages. First, we go to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. On this occasion, Jesus has has healed the man who was there beside the pool of Bethsaida. And Jesus says, you think this is something, there are greater miracles that are coming. And in verse 24, he's going to describe some of these greater works that he's going to do, these greater miracles. So this is John chapter 5 and verse 24. Read with me. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life, and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Now, he's not talking about physical death, at least not yet. He's talking about spiritual death, and he says... Time has come when those who are dead in their sins can hear the voice of God and live. Because Christ is about to make the atoning sacrifice for sins. He says, you want to see greater works? I'm about to work a work where I'm going to die on behalf of all people so that their sins can be fully and truly forgiven. Verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this. He says, don't marvel that I'm able to forgive sins because I'm going to show you another sign that I'm going to do. For the hour is coming, it's not here yet, but it's coming, in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Jesus says, I'm going to call all forth from the grave. And there is going to be this dividing, where some are going to come to a resurrection of life, some are going to come to a resurrection of condemnation. And that's described well in Matthew chapter 25, if you want to turn over there. This too is sometimes called a parable, but like our text from the Gospel of Luke, It doesn't exactly seem to fit. Oh, it fits in the context. We have three parables that are before it that all are talking about judgment. They talk about the command and responsibility that God gives. They talk about the time that God gives to obey or disobey. They talk about a reckoning where that time runs out. But then finally, and most importantly for our purposes this morning, they talk about a dividing in judgment, where we are rewarded or punished as we stand before God. And in verse 31, that's what we see. Again, I don't think this is a parable. I think it's an image of what's going to happen when we die. More specifically, when Christ comes again in judgment. Verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, Then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And He will set the sheep on his right hand. I'm always hesitant to make these gestures when I'm standing up here. Sheep on his right hand, the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of the father. My father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Verse 41, then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And both of these people, both the righteous and the unrighteous... uh, reply to God and say, when? When did that happen? When did we do that for you? When did we not do that for you? And you remember Jesus's response, Inasmuch as as you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me. And so one of the criterias for judgment is how we're going to treat other people, especially those who are in a more difficult position in life than we are. And so verse 46, and these will go away into everlasting punishment but the righteous into eternal life. There's the dividing. And after this judgment, after this sentencing, we see that there are some who go to heaven, and they go into everlasting life, and there are some who go to what we call hell, who go into everlasting damnation. One more passage, and then we'll make some applications. Let's go to the book of Revelation together. Revelation chapter 20. Revelation is a book of signs and symbols, and so we're hesitant to make a too direct application to this is the way it's going to be, but it does provide us with pictures of what these final days will be like. Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things that were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. And so the image, as we described it before, is you have a book. Everyone has a book of the things that they've done in the body, the things that they've done in their life. That's the image. I I don't know if literally God's going to open up books. I kind of doubt that, but that's the image. The things that you've done in your life. And there's another book, which is the book of life. And that's where you want your name written so that you might enter into heaven itself. Verse 14, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So Hades, from this passage, apparently is temporary. This is not a permanent place. But after the Lord comes again in judgment, we will each be sent to our place of permanent dwelling. Heaven and hell are permanent. Now, maybe you knew all that already. I'm sorry I wasted... 20 minutes of your time and talking about that. But there's handouts out there if you want to study that more on your own. Maybe some of that is new to you. Um, but just having this knowledge is not particularly fruitful for us. If that's all we have is just the knowledge, what is the application that we should make from this reality? God reveals to us exactly what we need. Um, Maybe sometimes he reveals things in order to fulfill our curiosity because he created us as curious beings, right? But generally when God reveals things to us, when he reveals mysteries to us, it's for a purpose. It's so that we might learn and apply things in this life to make us ready for the next. And so why is it that God revealed this whole thing about, where you're going to go to another place of Hades, and this is a place where you're going to wait, and then all of us are going to have a body at the resurrection, at Christ's return, and then there's going to be this reckoning, this sentencing, where you're going to be sent to heaven and hell. Why was all of that revealed to us? What difference does it make? Well, I want you to think about three things with me this morning by way of application. Knowing where we go when we die does at least three things for us. Knowing where we go when we die is a reminder of God's perfect judgment. There is no waiting period. There is no uncertainty. There is no partiality with God in his judgment for those who have Come to Christ and know Christ. The angels are already gathered and ready to take your spirit to paradise. We know that's not the way it always is in the physical world, right? The Sixth Amendment of the United States Constitution promises citizens to the right to a fair, public, and speedy trial. But that's not always what happens. Sometimes the trial takes years Sometimes the result is unfair and unjust, and sometimes the proceedings are hidden from view. That's not the way it always is. But God's judgment is the ultimate perfection of that ideal, fair and public and speedy. What about perfectly just and good and gracious, that God makes no mistakes in in his judgment, that he is perfect in those things? What about instantaneous Uh, I was reading earlier this week as I was preparing for this lesson, I just Googled longest trials in in U.S. history. Did did you know that there have been trials that have lasted like seven years and the people were not granted bail and they had to stay in jail for seven years as they're being tried and there's all of these appeals? And in some cases, they're acquitted. And it's like, but I spent the last seven years of my life in jail. I don't have any jobs or any prospects. It, It just seems so unfair, doesn't it? But God's judgment is instantaneous. He knows immediately. And we know immediately. And what about public? Ultimately, our sentencing is before all who have ever lived, as all the nations stand before him. I find great comfort in this first point that God judges instantly with perfect knowledge of every individual and every situation. God judges with a knowledge of what every person knows, with the opportunities that they've had or that they haven't had, with a perfect knowledge of what they've been through in their life, what they've experienced, both good and bad, the good influences and the bad influences, the triumphs and the failures. He knows every thought that they've ever thought, good and bad. He knows what they've done in secret, good and bad. He knows their physical and emotional state in doing those things, good and bad. God knows everything. And as human beings who care about other human beings, sometimes we're placed in these positions where we have to do some judging. Where we have to look at the lives of other people and hold up the mirror of God's Word and say, in my judgment, is this person living the way Christ would have them to live or not? And it's a difficult thing. It's a difficult thing sometimes. We are compelled to do that so that we might share the truth with them, and hopefully they share the truth with us. But it's a difficult thing. Because I know how imperfect my judgments are compared to God's. I know so little of what's going on in any given situation. He knows everything that's going on in every situation and how those things interact with one another. I can't read somebody's heart. I can look at their actions. I can make determinations. But only God sees what is truly in their mind and heart. And even if I had that knowledge, even if God somehow zapped me with perfect knowledge of every situation and he, and he showed me exactly what's in people's hearts, I would not have the capacity, number one, to understand all of that, but I would not have good enough judgment to use that in the proper way. And yet our God, in His greatness and in His holiness and in his perfection is able to judge perfectly. And in those times in my life, when I've been unsure about the eternal destiny of one that I love, I can leave it in the hands of the perfect judge and find hope in his mercy and in his grace. These glimpses that God gives us of what happens after we die reminds us of his perfect judgment. I'm, I'm overwhelmed by it. But I'm grateful for it. Knowing where we go when we die is also a reminder that we will be judged based on the things done in the body. I do not believe that the Bible teaches that there is a a purgatory, some second chance after death, where we live again in penance for what we have done no, it seems to me that the Scriptures teach clearly in many places, but in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, for example, it is appointed for men to die once, and after this, the judgment. Abraham talks to the rich man back there in Luke chapter 16, if you want to turn back to that passage. In Luke chapter 16, he talks to him about what he did and what he had In his lifetime, in your lifetime, you had the opportunities to do good things and bad things. You had the opportunity to enjoy things and to fare sumptuously and clothe yourself in fine linen and purple. And you also had the opportunity to give to the poor, to help out a beggar like Lazarus, who was taken and laid at your gate. And you made your choices in your lifetime. And now you've been judged based on those choices. This... This, ladies and gentlemen, this life that we're living right now, this is our opportunity. And here, in this life, God gives us chance after chance after chance by His grace. But death is coming for all of us if the Lord does not come again first. And upon my death, my destiny is sealed. And so what will the day of my death be like? No, clearly that physical success is not necessarily an indicator of spiritual success. If you're back there in Luke chapter 16, if we go up in the context to verses 14 and 15, this is when Jesus is telling this parable. In verse 14 it says, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. You think you're justified before men, but God knows what's really in your heart. But notice this last phrase in verse 15. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Uh, Having a desire to be rich, being a lover of money is often highly esteemed in our culture, right? Uh, Now, don't misunderstand me. Yes, being rich is highly esteemed, but a lot of times that's uh, derided as well because other people are covetous and they want to take those things. But this attitude of somebody who's a go-getter who wants to make lots of money in our culture, that's something that's highly esteemed, something that's rewarded, but God says that's an abomination to him. That kind of attitude is not what we should be searching for. And it's not that one can't be physically successful and still be a great Christian. We've got a number of wonderful examples of that even in the room this morning. But we are foolish to equate those those two in some sort. That physical success and ease in this life is an indicator of what you will have in the next. The beggar Was the one who was carried by the angels to comfort in paradise in Abraham's bosom. The rich man was the one who was in anguish and torments. Anguish and torment or comfort and peace? Those those are the realities, and there is no middle ground, and that should motivate us to live righteously. Now, don't misunderstand me. We talked last Sunday that the only reason anyone who is accountable for their actions will be saved or will be in paradise temporarily or in heaven eternally is because of God's grace. Because he was merciful through his son, Jesus Christ. In sending Jesus, God is both just, the price had been paid, and the justifier, it is paid through Jesus of the one who has faith in Jesus. We are justified by Christ But we are also very clearly judged by whether or not we have submitted and committed ourselves totally to Christ. That's the lesson, or it was the lesson. And in preparation, uh, these were the two points that I planned to make. And then, like a dummy, I went back and read the text again, and I said to myself, well, dummy, maybe you should make the point Jesus was making knowing where we go when we die. Why did Jesus reveal this account at all in Luke chapter 16? Why did he tell it? Because it is a reminder of the sufficiency of God's Word to bring about repentance. That's the point that Jesus was making on this occasion. If we refuse to hear the Word of God, there is nothing else that's going to convict or convince us God's Word tells us about where we go when we die, and it tells us what we must do to choose where we're going to go by the grace of God. If God has sent His Son so that we might be saved, don't you think He knows the best way to bring about that salvation in us? Or do you think God wants us to waste that gift? God has chosen to reveal these things through His Word because that is the best way. And yet oftentimes our reaction might be like the rich man in verse 30. No, Father Abraham, don't just give me Moses and the prophets. We all know that. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But He said to him, verse 31, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rise from the dead. Surely they'll believe if somebody is raised from the dead. All will believe if that were the case, right? Right? But we know better, don't we? We know better because there are examples in the Bible that show us differently. Uh, Lazarus in Luke chapter Uh, In John chapter 11, and verses 45 through 48, after Lazarus is raised from the dead, many believe, but others go to the scribes and Pharisees and tell them these things. And their response is not to, well, hallelujah, somebody's raised from the dead. This must really be a prophet. Their idea in that passage is, what are we going to do to silence this? Because nobody can deny a great sign has been done. And if this keeps happening, they're going to come and take away our place in our kingdom. Somebody was raised from the dead, and they were like, I can't believe him, even though I acknowledge somebody was raised from the dead. In Matthew chapter 28, when those who were at the tomb come to the chief priests and rulers, and they say, hey, this is what happened. They say, well, you need to tell this story that his disciples came and stole him away. That's what you need to do, and we're going to pay you to do that. They see the angel come and Jesus rise, and they take some money rather than believing. But the ultimate example, of course, is Jesus himself. Someone was raised from the dead, and yet they still did not believe and obey. The people who did believe, they were going to believe anyway. So what's the lesson? Well, turn to Romans chapter 10 and verse 14. This last scripture and the lesson will be yours. Romans chapter 10 and verse 14. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher, a proclaimer of the gospel? Don't think me, think you. How shall they preach unless they are sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Not everyone is going to come to Christ and have faith in him, and that should break our hearts. But the only way to achieve active, living faith is through the Word of God that He has revealed. And God has given us the power and ability to bring others to Him through the power of His Word. We have everything that we need right here and we're lacking in faith if we say, well, if only the Lord had given us a little bit more today than just His Word, then we would do so much better in evangelism. Like if we had, you know, the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit that, that He gave in the first century to, to give us direct revelation and to work miracles and to prophesy and to heal the sick, if we did that, then we would really convert more people. And the ironic thing is, the Holy Spirit was given in that way for what purpose? to reveal and confirm the Word of God. And from a biblical perspective, what we have is even greater than what they had. And these accounts, knowing where we go when we die, tells us that pining for something else is not the answer. If someone has a good and honest heart, then preaching the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ to them will be more than enough to bring them to Christ. And if they don't have a heart willing to accept the gospel, then it wouldn't matter what we did. What sign we performed, they would not turn to him, even if one were raised from the dead. So the practical application for all of us that Jesus is making in this passage, I believe, is that we have all the power we need right here. Moses and the prophets in the New Testament apostles and prophets. And we have no excuse not to proclaim it because it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, as Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 tells us. Salvation on earth is available, which leads to salvation in paradise, which leads to salvation in heaven. Is that where you're going? When you die, well, you can have the confidence this morning that comes only from a right relationship with Jesus. And if we can help you to come to Christ, to put him on in baptism, or to walk faithfully as you seek to live for him, will not you come now, while together we stand and while we sing. All